0: I just hear the voice of the Cryptkeeper, and you're listening to notable Spogelman on Reliving My Youth, or as the Cryptkeeper Keeper would say, Reliving My After Youth. <laughs>
1: Living my youth, The show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noah Holcomb. Halloween is right around the corner, so I figured we'd scare things up with John Kassir, a.k.a. the Crypt Keeper. John played the iconic role for seven seasons on HBO's Tales from the Crypt. John talks a bit about how he landed that role, and just why it's so iconic. John also played another memorable role, Zagreb, the Romanian kicker, on First and Ten, which I believe was HBO's first dramatic series. John talks a bit about O.J. Simpson, who played the general manager, T.D. Parker, on that show. And John, as a non-stand-up comedian, won the stand-up competition on Star Search. Remember that show? Defeating two high-profile comedians along the way. I won't mention who they are. We'll talk a bit about that during the interview. John's an accomplished voiceover actor. Pete's Dragon, among others. He was the voice of Deadpool on TV. Uh, And John developed... A fabulous show, but it's all but forgotten. It's called Johnny Time on USA. We talk a bit about what happened to that show and just why it's not around anymore. And helping me relive my youth today is the one and only John Kassir. John, how are you today? I'm good. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, so let's go way, way back. Uh, how did you... Uh, first know you want to become an actor slash performer um you know I was uh I always
0: kind of loved it as a kid I always loved you know entertainment I loved watching stuff like the Ed Sullivan show and um you know I was a little kid with big dreams and I liked you know acting them out I used to do circuses in my basement throughout like the neighborhood kids I would pretend to be the guy on a tightrope walk and I would pretend to be on a unicycle and you know, I would wake the kids in, and I was like, you know, I had my own little Ringling Brothers thing going on in my basement, and, and uh, you know, I'd charge them a penny to get in, and then I'd, I'd uh, charge them five cents for the penny candy, like they do at the movies. <laughs> you, know? So, um, you know, I started doing it, and of course, when I got into school and stuff, they would do plays, and um, I've, uh, you know, as a kid, I... I uh, you know, was uh, suffering from dyslexia, which they didn't really know what that was back then. So they just, you know, just kind of said I was, you know, lazy and didn't apply myself. But of course I, w- I was, uh, you know, disruptive because I was trying to, you know, um, participate any way that I could. And it was usually by entertaining the class. So, um, you know, there was a couple of teachers along the way uh, that, that recognized that as, you uh, as something that would, you know, give me an opportunity to get up front of the class, and, you know, to poetry or these kind of things. And, and that's how I got an opportunity to, you know, start performing in the class. So it's something I always really wanted to do.
1: Right. And you also were a street performer and also a mime, I believe?
0: Um, well, yeah, you know, when I got into college, I mean, I always loved, when I saw, uh, you know, I loved Red Skelton, who was a funny physical comedian and Dick Van Dyke and, Charlie Chaplin and these, these physical comedians. And, and then I realized, you know, seeing Marcel Marceau on TV, I realized it was actually, like, this art um, uh, a performance that was called Pantomime, and it was, you know, without any props or costumes or anything, uh, you know, uh, makeup if you wanted. Um, you'd create, uh, you know, like a whole show and a whole scenario of uh, performing, uh, pretending that everything was there. And, um, so I started, uh, self-teaching myself that. And then when I got into college at Towson University, um, I I auditioned for the the Mime Troupe, and I got in right off the bat without even taking any classes, and, um, wound up taking and teaching classes there and, and, uh, gave part of their Mime Troupe. So, um, you know, they would send us out to, 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 uh, work with, uh, Blind and handicapped people, you know, as part of our training, uh, which was a really nice thing to do, but also uh, perform at malls and that kind of thing, um, at schools, perform at schools for kids and that and that sort of thing. So I started developing kind of a you know, some routines, and then once I moved to New York, uh, I was uh, you know doing theater in New York, uh, which paid, you know. Pretty much paid shit, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. So I would make my money going out in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and perform on uh, street performing pantomime on the street, and uh, help you know survive me through the through the lean years of uh, of performing. I, I I wanted to make my money performing. You know, I didn't want to get a job. You know, working in a restaurant or you know that kind of thing. The other jobs besides acting that I ever had, um, it normally took place during the winter because I couldn't street perform. Um, I worked in a friend's clothing store, clothing store, and I worked in a paint store for a little while around wound up, you know, hanging wallpaper for them and that kind of thing. But it was a very short period of time that I had any other job other than performing. Um, I, I had a I had a business that was. You know, doing singing balloonograms, (laughs) and so I did that for a little while. But I figured it was the coolest. At least it felt like I was performing. You know what I mean?
1: Right, absolutely. So that was just like a very short amount of time that I lived in New York. The rest of the time, I survived by doing a computer and
0: street performing, and then. you know, once I started doing some stand-up comedy and, and that kind of thing, it broke me open
1: into the television industry. Right. I want to talk a little about your stand-up, because um, you were on Star Search, but you weren't uh, a stand-up when they approached you, correct? Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I actually
0: hadn't done much stand-up at that time. I was. I had done some sketch comedy <clears throat> with a comedy group that I, uh, that I had worked on uh in college with uh some friends of mine and um you know we would write a new hour and a half show of baltimore every every month and perform it at a what was a dinner theater space downtown baltimore and that brought a start bringing a lot of people down baltimore before it had uh, regentrified downtown by the harbor and uh which was really kind of exciting for us um uh, you know we were kind of like baltimore's version of second city or saturday night live and uh, we got a lot of heat for it, but then we wound up doing some USO tours, uh, performing for U.S. troops around the world, and, and uh, you know that kind of thing, which was a very cool thing that happened for us. We were very excited about it. You know, so I had done that kind of thing, but I hadn't really done newspaper performing, of course, but hadn't really done any stand-up comedy. But I had landed a role in an off-Broadway show uh, that uh, was called Three Guys Naked from the Waist Down. <laughs> Not sounds like a gay review of the village, right? (laughs) Uh, but it was, uh, this was about stand-up comics and, uh, I think Dream Girls, uh, the musical Dream Girls, but this was a musical about three stand-up comics, and starred me and Scott Bakula, and a guy named Jerry Colker, who was, uh, you know, a writer, an excellent performer, and and wrote a part for it, himself in it, and, um, it was big off-Broadway, and, um the comic that I played was kind of a dark, old Andy Kaufman-ish type character and um, I was able to launch, uh, you know, a really nice, uh, you know, some of my own material into the character, uh, which uh, Jerry was very gracious to allow me to do. And, um, you know, while I was doing the Having done sketch comedy and that kind of thing, it was it gave you two and a half minutes and I just started frantically putting together these different for Tom Jones in Vegas my agents were you were like we're going to put you uh, you're going to open for uh, the Temptations of the Four Tops on their TNT tour and Lou Rawls and Bonnie Dangerfield and all these different people and I didn't have an act really so I was like I better grab some of those bits that I did on Star Search and get into the clubs and work up I had to work up 20 minutes as an opening act for musical acts and uh so I started with that, and you know, because I didn't do a lot of, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of jokes and stuff. All my, a lot of my material was doing all these different voices and characters, and I kind of developed an act of uh, a guy who was addicted to television. I could, uh, you know, use the remote, change channels on myself, become all these different characters, that kind of thing. Which is, uh, which is kind of how people knew that I did a lot of different voices and characters. Uh, you Know kind of what launched my voiceover career. So after winning Star Search, people were like, Hey, you want to audition for our voiceover job? and that kind of thing. I was, uh, had uh, gotten on another series on HBO called First and Ten. Oh, yeah, <laughs> which was, uh, you know, their first series. And, uh, I know you were interested in talking about that because, uh, it's, uh, not a lot of people remember that show because it was, uh, it was. Back when HBO was first on the air, right. and um, here I was, you know, playing a Bulgarian field goal kicker who can kick 60-yard field. Of the actors on the show, um, a lot of the actors.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny because when I, I tell people, hey, have you heard of First and Ten, they're like, the um, old ESPN show? I'm like, no, it would be a football show on HBO with O.J. Simpson. And immediately when I say O.J., you know, they laugh. You know, I, I lose them right there. I'm like, no, 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 it was actually a pretty good show, and he was a halfway decent actor. So I was working with O.J., Oh,
0: Sam Jones. Sam Jones, and who was playing the quarterback in that first season.
1: Oh, that's and, right, yeah.
0: Um, and I had those guys laughing their asses off, and he was like, you know what, this guy's great. we got to have him. OJ was a producer on the show, so he was like, we got to have this guy on the show. So I wound up, you know, years on that show. Um, but, uh, you know, OJ, you know, treated the guys great, and, and uh, you know, and that kind of thing, of course. You know, I mean, we all know historically what happened after that. Of course, it kind of sucked that, right. you know, when the show was supposed to go into syndication, uh, uh, you know, Nicole Simpson, the uh, O.J. Simpson uh, thing happened, which was, uh, you know, obviously a <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like now become like television history, but a horrible thing for their families. But, um, you know, they pulled the show off the air um, in syndication. Uh, which probably, you know,
1: in in retrospect, wasn't it as it was it, wasn't it that important that I lost a lot of money uh, in syndication residuals because of that. But it, you know, it, it, somebody lost their life. But uh, at the same time, it was like, okay, you know, this was this was a bizarre twist of fate, you know. Yeah, no doubt. There's a someone tweeted out. It's it's a great picture of Howard Cosell. Standing in the middle of Bruce Jenner and O.J. Simpson, and the quote is, "I looked in the future, and you will not believe the shit." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go, man. I have a picture somewhere of me standing between Joe Namath and O.J. Simpson. Joe Namath was on, you know, it would come on as a like
1: an Right. That's right. Yeah.
0: Usually on the show, and uh, I got to meet so many big, you know, big football heroes on that show. We also had some great actors. Chris Maloney from SVU was a a quarterback on the show a couple of seasons.
1: Yeah, Johnny Gunn, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, of course, Delta Burke, who a lot of people remember from Designing Women and some of the other shows
0: that she was on. This was her first series. And uh, we even had Shannon Tweed on the show for a while. You know, Gene Simmons gets to show up on the set with her sometimes. Oh, wow. (laughs) That was a strange thing. But Jason um, McKay, who's on uh, Chicago PD, is it Chicago cop or
1: Chicago PD? What's the name of that show? Uh, one of the Chicago yeah. Fire or Chicago PD? I don't remember. It's one of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, same guy's that do Chicago Fire. He plays
0: the the police chief uh police uh, sergeant or captain or
1: yeah. whatever it is on yeah, that, that show. Yeah, Tommy Yonesa, um, right? <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, exactly. of the quarterback on there. So it was, you know, a lot of people... Uh, uh, their teeth on that show so it was on for uh, nearly seven years so it was pretty uh you know it had a pretty good success um
2: of course a lot of guys will come up to me and goes, oh i love that show i go you watch it for the titties and they're like yeah because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know people's parents didn't, didn't know they were watching a football show it was one of the first series on tv that you know right. had nudity is you know along with
0: the comedy and sports um so it was kind of like uh, you know uh, an interesting, uh, time for television to be, um, to jump on the TV for me, and, um, you know, wound up working a, a bit on Dream On, <coughs> which was another HBO series, and then, of course, first, uh, Tales from the Crab, so it was, HBO was very good to me early on in my career, and, um, obviously they wanted um, to make some of the best television ever.
1: Yeah, absolutely, even, like, when First and 10 was running, uh, Dream On, that was also, like, a revolutionary show, I think right. yeah, I think like even not necessarily the news was on right around that time as well.
0: Say that again.
1: Uh, not necessarily the news. I think that was. Yeah, on.
0: it's not necessarily the news, and you know, a lot of they were doing some really fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, uh, it's it's all branched out into you know Game of Thrones and some pretty amazing things, but you know, they were the template for all the with all the cables. Channels we were going to do. I mean, when I first came on, they basically had some sporting events and some, you know, soft porn was porn was their thing. And they've gone on to become one of the, you know, one of the classiest, top, you know, quality, uh, um, you know, channels on cable as well. Over the years, have gotten to do comedy specials and Reaper right. Madness movie musicals. Right.
1: Yeah, but both those networks have come a long way from showing, you know, the softcore core and like you know, real sex and whatnot.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a really great time to break out of, you know, into television for me. Um, you know, coming from stand-up comedy, I mean, it was hard for people to take me seriously. Here, I wasn't a theater actor, but people only only knew me as the guy who won Star Search out here in California. So, um, you know, a lot of the. A lot of material that was being offered to me was was fluff, but, you know, I mean, um, uh, but it was an opportunity for me to really build a, a career that's, you know, including my theater careers has lasted, you know, supporting myself as an actor has lasted 37 years. So I know I don't look as old as that, but, uh, you know. I think the uh, playing an old dead guy probably keeps me younger looking in real life. It's kind of like having your painting in the closet. You know the yeah. <laughs> like, a yeah. like, Dorian Gray story, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, like, like speaking of the you, know, keeper ages, you know, he stays the same age
1: too. <laughs> yeah, it's totally. Now speaking of the crypt keeper, um how did you get that role? I know you were kind of a big fan of the comic books, right? huge fan of the comic books. I loved them as a kid. My grandfather had a little store in Springfield, Mass. I, you know, I lived in Baltimore, but my mom grew up there.
2: When we'd go as kids up uh, to visit all my cousins and everything, we all go down to my grandfather's store and uh, 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 you know, like a magazine stand and comic books. And, you know, my other other cousins were always trying to, like, sneak, you know, s- uh, steal and sneak the porn off the, <laughs> off the magazine stand, and I was always trying to steal the tales from the comic books.
0: And, um, of course, they were very controversial back then, because that was prior to the, uh, you know, the age code and stuff, which, of right. course, EC Comics was partially responsible for that happening, um, because they were controversial. They believed they caused juvenile delinquency. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to have the co- my comic books. I had a box of Casper comics that I got from, like, uh, a friend of my sister's or whatever, and, and uh... I used to hide all my Tales from the Crypt comic books in there. But, um, you know, years later when I got Tales from the Crypt, I went back to my home looking for my Tales from the Crypt comic books. And my, my mom was like, oh, I gave them to some kid down the street. Oh. And it's all with your matchbox cards and your Hot Wheels. I'm like, no! no. <laughs> you know, because yeah. these are the most collectible things I, ha- I own, you know? I was like, you have any idea what those comic books are worth, mother? Right. Yeah, she was like, oh, they caused juvenile delinquency. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, mom, they're like, you know, back then they were worth four or five hundred bucks, you right. know? Yeah. Now they're like worth over a thousand bucks a piece if you can find them in good shape. It, it, and if I could sign them, they'd probably be worth a lot more. Oh, so, no doubt. You know, it's, it's amazing though to, to even think about it. But when I was a kid, you couldn't, you know, there was no videos. there was no, uh, on-demand television. There was no cable. You had to wait for three channels, and you had to wait for, uh, you had to look through the TV guy to see if there was any horror movies on. So, you know, I mean, there, would, there was, a uh, something called Twilight Movie in, in, in Baltimore when I was a kid and that was play probably around 4.30, something like that, it came on. Um, you know, as my mother was making dinner, I'd be sitting there watching, uh, you know, the Universal Horror Monster movies. You know, I loved everything with a the theremin, you know, in the background. <laughs> you know, the fun stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, they'd have the, some of the Roger Corman, Edgar post Poe stuff, but probably, you know, House of Wax, uh, uh, Mask of the Red Death, you know, all these really, the, the pendulum, some pretty cool stuff. They'd also have, you know, a bunch of the, the sci-fi horror uh, stuff, whether it was Attack of the 50-Foot Woman or Mothra or Ultraman or all these different cool stuff. But most of the, most of the, they'd also have like Doors Day movies and that right. kind of thing. So you had to like sift through all the, all the stuff you didn't want to see and see what was playing during the week and if you could find. to to get TV guides. so I'd have to look through like the, the newspaper guide which is really, really hard to find what was playing you know yeah. but uh, it was amazing for me to go in you know because I was working for HBO already I, my agent got a call and said look you know we need somebody who can you know who's good at stand up comedy and a, who's an actor and can do voices and that kind of thing to bring this character to life for us We're um, <clears throat> having the auditions down at Kevin Kind of a subversive, you know, cable series. Uh, um, I mean, HBO was, was you know, stretching it to say that it was in 10% of households at the time. Um, you know, if people wanted to watch the shows they wanted to watch on HBO, they had to go over to a friend's house or something and, and catch it. People would have like HBO night, you know. And uh, here they were making a series based on the comic book that I loved. I went down to Kevin Yeager's studio, and obviously Kevin, you know, had some of the coolest creatures he'd ever made in his shop that he'd been working on over the years, and here he was making some different versions of the Crypt Keeper out of spare parts of his shop, so probably didn't give him very much money to start into audition looking at the copy going you know looking at all the puns going be careful what you ask for you may get it this is terrible i was like you know i'm like they don't get it this guy thinks it's like shakespeare right. you know <laughs> so i gave him a bit of a british act just a, a hint of a british accent and and you know made him this this gleeful you know host and i started uh presenting him that way and uh, doing it for Kevin and he was like shaking his head yeah 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 and I started laughing because he was having such a good time and I was like oh, perfect this is, this is the character that likes to laugh at his own jokes <laughs> so um, and his own pun so I started doing that building it, and eventually I'm like doing this screaming laugh you know having done The Wizard of Oz all those years I was like you know, throwing a little Mar- Margaret Hamilton you know as the Wicked Witch Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know the next day, he had me doing it for Joel Silver and Dick Donner in, in their little makeshift office. That was, you know, on the uh, Tales from the Crypt set.
1: And uh, the rest was history. They gave me the job on the spot. Well, wow, that's great. Last seven seasons. I mean, it's, it's yeah, a timeless classic. Especially for cable. Right now, did you write your own intros or contribute to it?
0: Um, you know, they had good writers Right the show. I mean, they had they, had, they could get the best of it. Donner, Walter Hill, Bob Zemeckis, David Dyler who did *Aliens*? I mean, they—they they could get who they wanted. They had really they had good writers, they had good directors, they had—you know—with a playground. So obviously, when we started out, first, you know, they, uh, you know, when they first had very specific writing, which was all great, you know. And once I got the hang of it, I had to do a lot of improv, uh, improv when I would do interviews. Um, when we would launch the season, I would do. I would do interviews like this, like 50 of them, you know, over, uh, uh, 50 over two minutes, right. um, on drive-by, uh, interview shows on the radio, um, you know, to launch the show, and, uh, I would have to improvise as the Crypt Keeper, so, <laughs> I had to start coming up with my own stuff, you know, plus, you write down a bunch of stuff that we had, in- You know, and I would just do stuff in the studio, crack them up, and they would wind up writing some of it in. Like I remember one day just cracking them up, and I never thought it would act, they would actually write it as a line. But I remember you know sitting there going, "I love a girl who'll give you head, and then that you keep it." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: and they were like, "Oh, that's hysterical!" Yeah, you know, I didn't know it was going to wind up as a bit. Of course, they wrote it as like the keepers sitting in bed with, uh, you know, like a dead dead corpse, you right. know, corpse next to him, and a box of chocolate, you know, heart-shaped chocolates in his
0: lap, and of course, he puts his arm around her, her head falls in his lap, <laughs> and he delivers that line, and um, and they just, you know, so, over the years, I, I got to, you know, really get a sense of, way of the way the guy's talked on his own, and, uh, you know, and, and, and delivered some laughs. When they first started The Crip Keeper, you know, like I said, you know, Kevin had made it from a bunch of spare parts, and um, so his mouth didn't work very well, you know. Um, I mean, it worked, but it just didn't, they couldn't make it open very wide and that kind of stuff, so he had to talk slow. You know, I auditioned for, you know, this this funny, you know, stand-up comic delivery character, but when I went into the studio to because he can't keep up with that. So I go, okay, we'll just make him a little slower and more obvious and more ominous and talk slower and a little more. <laughs> like that. So in the first season or two, you see a little more of that type of crib Keeper. But of course, when the show got picked up, they had a little, a little more money, you know, a little more budget to give Kevin to spruce him up and make his mouth work better, and I kind of, bit more together. I mean, four or five puppeteers making one character work in that, you know, Boo Raku, Kabuki-style puppetry, you know, and they did an amazing job. And eventually they were able to watch me, um, like when we would do uh, live interviews with the crib Keeper, obviously the camera would be on the crib Keeper, and I'd be off-camera answering the questions. And the puppeteers would be watching me, and then they would be like keeping up uh, with me speaking. And we did the the, uh, uh, Horror Hall of Fame awards where we're improvising and that kind of thing. And they were, you know, they could keep up with me like so closely that you couldn't even see that it was that they were, you know, that I was making it up and they were following me. So it was pretty, pretty incredible. They were, they were, they were pretty amazing. They they were, you know, badly the lead puppeteer uh, bands. amazing careers for one of the top puppeteers in Hollywood but um, <clears throat> you know it's amazing amazing uh, legacy that uh, that we were able to create with uh, uh, you know Kevin Yeager and of course Kevin directed all those, episodes, those right. uh, sequences and he's just brilliant at it they were just so fun every week there would just be something so so bizarre and funny and I'd go okay well and, you know, the commercial, it will be like, you've seen those commercials, this is your brain, and then they show a brain in a frying pan, and they go, this is your brain on drugs. They go, we're going to do a takeoff on that. So, of course, they had the crib keeper has got a frying pan, and he's got, this is your brain. And then he goes, and they show the brain in the, in the pan, and he goes, this is your brain on drugs. They go, this is your brain on tails from the crypt And he takes a big hammer and smashes it. <laughs> <on the pan. laughs> I was like, oh, perfect. It's great stuff. And then sometimes I would crack them up doing like, you know, The Crypt Keeper as Marlon Brando or The Crypt as John Wayne or something like that. And the next thing you know, they're writing, you know, comes the third or fourth piece or something, they start writing. You know, The Crypt Keeper doing these impersonations, and they put him in a curly wig, and he was, you know, Howard Stern. You know, we did him as Marlon Brando in, in the Streetcar Named Desire to The Crypt Keeper in, in a t-shirt with his bony little arms, you know. Ella! You know? Yeah. Doing stuff like that. And it just, you know, it just went on from there. You, you really became like a star in his own right, you know? It's funny, it's like when you start out as an actor, you like to think that, you know, that you, you hope that you become a star so that you can work the rest of your life and, um, you know, have amazing jobs and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, the life of a, a movie star But after... You know, winning Star Search and losing a certain amount of my anonymity and that kind of thing, I found that I really didn't enjoy that aspect of it as much. So it was kind of fun that over the years I've been able to, um, you know, the voices of a lot of famous characters and still fly under the radar, still walk down the street without people recognizing me for the most part. You know, if I go to a convention or, you know, someplace where there's a lot of my fans or horror fans or, you know, people would know what I look like, and of course, they're you know, I can you know, I can get that 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 kind of uh, you know fun kind of thing. I, I've always kind of felt like I can still you know be one of the one of the masses when I you know when I like to be um, in terms of uh, you know rubbing shoulders with the people who appreciate my work because I mean I'm not doing brain straight you know what I mean it's, it's like I'm not you know I'm not loyalty I'm you know. Freaking entertainer. People enjoy my work, that's great. That means that I'm doing my job well. And you know, people love the characters that I've done, and I've even done my job better because it's, you know, ultimately, if you're a good actor, it's all about the characters, not about you. So, um, you know, I'm really, uh, I feel real, really fortunate to, to, to have the career that I have. You know, as you get older, you get into your 40s, 50s, even 60s, or even older like, you get less and less, a lot less work on camera just because they're playing as many parts for those those actors and the actors that you're up against are good to do because they've been around as well for all this time and, and so that you don't get paid as much for it because it's competitive you know, It just uh, that kind of gets less and less some people just give up on it you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to as a voice actor play a bunch of characters that I would never get to play on camera and I'm not Typed out by my age or, or, or physical makeup or uh, race or even whether I'm human or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I get to play a lot of non human characters. Uh, you know, Ellen is dragon and Miko and the raccoon and, you know, play an animal and stuff, which is kind of fun, or Spurs or Deadpool or all these fun characters. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I really, I mean, the older I get, the, the more I appreciate my career's worked out. I mean, it it may not have been exactly the direction that I was going. Um, you know, when I started out, I thought I would, I I, I just wanted to be a theater actor and work on the stage, which is, which is so much fun. But you get paid so little, I realized you, you really need to, and then the best parts were also going to people who were on television and film. So I was like, ooh, I better, uh, you know, I better work that part of it too. And of course now, um, here I'm. Uh, I'm able to work way past, show, you know, uh, a lot of actors' shelf life just based on the, the voice work that I get to do. Yeah, and one of those
1: roles I just saw with you was playing the Martini Bot in uh, Mystic Cosmic mm-hmm. Patrol on the Funny or Die website. Had uh, that come about? Um, you know, I mean, work. Uh, it's funny. It's another actual Tales from the Crypt connection,
0: okay. really, because uh, Gavin. Uh, Hick Knight, who wrote and created the show, uh, uh, a very creative guy, He's, he, uh, you know, uh, we worked together on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and that kind of thing, uh, he was a writer, uh, as well as um, doing a lot of the promotional stuff for Fearnet, and Tales from the Crypt was the Fearnet, and so uh, Gavin's job was to, um, you know, promote the Crypt Keeper and promote Fearnet, and promote Tales from the Krypton fear Fearnet, and we did a, 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 you know, wound up at a, at a, at a number of uh, conventions and, and events together promoting the show, and, um, you know, I recognized him as a very talented, you know, young guy, and, uh, and he's uh, wanted to, you know, uh, has asked me, you know, a few favors over the time to, you know, to help. Uh, be in some of his projects, and I was, of course, I said yes, because, we the guy's very talented, and I I, and I knew he would be making some fun stuff. Um, we made a, a, a pilot episode of a of a fun werewolf movie called uh, Night People that I did. It's, it's kind of a, a werewolf comedy, um, which was a lot of fun that I did for Evan, and then he asked me to come in and do Martini Bot for him, um, and I was like, yeah, definitely a lot of fun doing that. He did a great job. It's a lot of fun. Um, so that's how that worked out. So, you know, as in most things in this business, people appreciate your work. They call you in, and, and if it winds up working, out, um, you know, that's how Pete's Dragon worked out. I came in to do just a little looping job to, to cover a, an actor's voice that was from New Zealand, so they didn't have the actor available, and they needed somebody to come in and, and double his voice for a little scene. Um, in the movie they came in and David, the director, David Landry the director was like, you know, I'm a huge fan of your work and I know you do you know, animals and creatures and this kind of stuff, give it a shot doing Elliot for me
2: mm-hmm.
0: so I did a few things for him and he was like, okay, he got the job so, <laughs> <laughs> you know doing all these great vocals for this uh, beautiful movie, I mean, if you haven't seen Pete Dragon, that's Really, really beautifully done, and it's it's one you know it's an instant classic uh, for Disney. Um, you know, David was a uh, uh, Sundance you know director, winner, you know, um, you know. So he obviously came from the, the mindset of independent feature, and you could tell he loved movies like E.T. and that kind of thing because it it really uh, the movie really has like a lot of fun to it.
1: Yeah, I think my son saw it, but I, yeah, I haven't yet to see it. But I'll, I'll definitely check it out. But before I let you yep. go, I, I don't care who you are. Bring
2: your handkerchief, man. Yeah, really right.
1: Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I got to ask you about Johnny Time. I, are oh, a, Johnny Time. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I was in college when it debuted. So I watched, you know, a little bit of it. Are you're gonna release any videos of it? Because it's you can't find it anywhere. No, because it's
0: you know it's it's funny the way that those things come and go. I mean, you do. Jumping uh, time was my own show, you know. Uh, I was doing. Uh, eventually, I took my my stand up and I turned it into a one man show in the theater, and it was a it was a hit here in L. A. And, um, you know, I it was called Confessions Keep Me Junkie, and, and I put my stand up into a show where the guy it was. It was basically about a guy who was who was uh, a tuba meeting He was uh, addicted to television and he was trying his best not to, not to watch TV. But he, as a result, he would wind up channeling TV shows out of himself and that kind of thing. And, and it was a very fun, funny show. And I got to do, you know, it was uh, a one-man show, but I had all the characters that I played. Of course, I had puppets and all this great stuff. That, and my buddy Jerry Coker, who had uh, written Three Guys Naked from the Waistown, Down, the musical that I told you about, um, you know, came I and mean, he was like, "Dude, you know, you got you, you got to make something. We got to make something out of this show. I mean, you know, this show's great. You know, what are you going to do?" And I was like, "You know, we had come up with the idea of doing a a sitcom where I had a kid show, where I had my own kid show in the sitcom and, and that kind of thing." And then. Um, I was uh, had a meeting with a with with Viacom Television, and they were they were pitching me the idea of a kids show that they had an idea for, and I was like, "Well, hold it right there! I have this idea. It's, a, it's a, you know, it was a kids show within a sitcom, but you know, the kids show was a great idea. Here's here's what the idea was for the kids show." them, so, and they immediately said, "We want to do this." So. Jerry and I, I took, I took you know, they, we wrote a script, they gave us a little money to write a script, we wrote a script, and it was such a visual show I couldn't really get it from the script. So I said, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take, uh, I'm gonna take money out of my, my, you know, all these years of working, and, you know, saved a little bit of money, you know, I'm gonna take the money that I have in my account, I'm gonna roll the dice on it, I'm gonna make the pilot myself and hire my friends who I know are talented enough to do all the things I needed to do, the costumes, the sets, the direction, the producing, mm-hmm. everything. And so I got my friends together, and we made a pilot. And I brought it to them, and they go, Oh, we totally get this show. We totally get it. Let's uh, let's start, you know, shopping in around the networks. So we took it in. The first network we took it into was USA Network, and they were looking for... Uh, to start their own children's programming, as it turned down. And um, they thought this would be the perfect flagship show for their, for, to launch their children's programming. And uh, Johnny Time was, uh, once you're on Johnny Time, you know, anything can happen was kind of the concept. And I played, you know, the host of a kid's show um, that, you know, was a modern, very modern and psychedelic version of all the old kid shows that I grew up with like How It's and all these different shows that had odd puppets and weird things but one of the things I always loved about those shows was that they talked right to you through through the camera lens and like they would put your name up there when it was your birthday and it made you feel like you could possibly even be on the show. So I would open each show with like a little bit of talking and I had big headed green kind of Isaac Hayes character named Smokey Tones Jones. He was a big green head guy. He, would, he was my co-host, kind of like my Ed McMahon on the Tonight Show. Right. And uh, we would introduce the show and then I would look out through the audience and I'd pull a kid through the, through the tube uh, the lens that was watching and pull him right onto the show. Um, and uh, the kid would have some problem, like well, the kid lost her braces, or this kid had, you know, he had a lot of fears. He and his brother were hanging out, but the younger brother had was afraid of everything. And so I would have, okay, today's theme, you know, uh, how to face your fears. Or, you know, one kid, we had like one kid that looked like a young version of Steve Buscemi, like he hadn't yet he slept in weeks. You know, it's like, uh, you know, how to fall asleep, you know, so that would become our theme for the day, and we would out uh, with all kinds of fun stuff and all kinds of fun characters and played all the other characters. I think over the span of the show, uh, 13 episodes, I think we had like 80-some characters. that I played. Wow. But um, there were some of the normal characters that were on every week. I had a little kid character who was in the corner because he was a bad kid. He was always getting into trouble, but he always had his own little philosophy on life. <laughs> That I had been doing for years. He was he was in all those sketch shows back in the day when I did, you know, Animal Crackers, the the, the, the sketch comedy group from Baltimore, and you know, kind of thing. So it was uh, really well received. TV guy you know, in their in their children's shows uh, edition, you know, they do one uh, time a year. They rate all the kids' shows, gave it like the top rating, and and that kind of thing. But. Sadly, on USA, they didn't really have much. Um, they didn't have much money to to really launch their kids show, and ultimately, they wound up um, not being able to give the show the rest of the rest of the support it needed on the channel. So I wound up like the only, pretty much the only kids show on USA Network, and uh, so it was like on Sunday mornings as a lead into the WWF. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> which is where we found out that it was really popular with stoners, <laughs> um, which was our, our initial intent for the show anyway. But um, uh, it was a really great show. But, you know, USA Network didn't have, um, y- y- you know, the money to continue with the show, sadly, But they loved the show. The show got, you know I mean, the show could have been like the next few years, but i think convinced it was a really, really, really great show. I had such great people um, hired to do all the job for me, and and uh, you know, and co-created by me and, and co-written, but most of a lot of it was written by Jerry. You know, he's a good writer. Jerry Colker who wrote through Guys didn't Get and that kind of thing. So it was a really fun show. We had I had such a blast making it, and um, was really proud of it. But you know, ultimately. You know, Viacom got bought out by Paramount, they got bought out by CBS. So it's in some library somewhere. And there are there's so many shows like Johnny Time that are there that'll never be seen on YouTube or anywhere because the too short sighted to go through their library to find things that are genius that they have there. You know, and I don't I don't really have enough of the rights. You know, I was I always hope I was like, you know what, maybe I'll just take some clips and put it out there. and um, see what happens. But um, you know, I don't even have—I don't—I don't even have a, a grip copy of it myself. It's you know the, the original uh, tapes, and uh, you know uh, are in some vault somewhere at CVS. Stuff, <laughs> 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 so, you know. But it—I—I—it um, I, 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 it, it had such a—it had such an appeal to not only kids but adults because it was really you know meant. It, it, it there were times we actually even made it kind of racy, you know, right. kind of. There was a lot of adult humor in there, the way that you would find in some park or something like
1: that. You know. Yeah, uh, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. I sure had a good time making that. Yeah, I think Silk Silk Sockings would have been a good lead-in for that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you know what? A, a good plot for a movie would be like you breaking into, you know, CBS and getting the vault and getting those copies, airing it, it becomes a big hit again, and they don't realize what they had. There you go. Yeah.
0: There
1: you go. Yeah, John, thanks hey, for. I, I,
0: I'll have to hire somebody to do that for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Plausible <laughs> deniability.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, thanks, John, for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck.
0: Hey, it's my pleasure, man, and uh, uh, good luck to you. And, and uh, thanks to all your listeners and and um and be careful what you ask for. You may get
1: it. And a special thanks to John for joining us today. You can follow John on Twitter at John Kassir. He's on Facebook. Search John Kassir. You can follow me on Twitter at TheFirstNoel19. Be sure to like the page, Reliving My Youth, on Facebook. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Please, guys, keep the reviews coming. A special thanks to everyone listening. I can't do without you guys. And check out the next episode of Reliving My Youth. Very soon.